Celtalin, a Welsh word for a Celtic harp. Welcome back to Tillin Tales. This is a podcast that intersects interests including psychology, folklore, ecology, and whatever else I might think about in the two weeks that I deliver this podcast, all with a background harp accompaniment. I'm your host, Sophia Matson. I act like a shop which is an old English word pronounced kind of like shop if you're British, and it's spelled S-C-O-P. A shop traditionally tells stories while playing an instrument to kings and queens while they're traveling. On Tillin Tales, I can be a scientific shop or a poetic shop, whatever type of shop I want to be. Science and creativity, though, are methods that I like to combine to enchant those who look for more within the everyday realm we experience, seeing what lies underneath. If you have any episode-related stories or thoughtful comments, you can email them to talintales at gmail.com, my new email for this podcast. That is T-E-L-Y-N-T-A-L-E-S at gmail.com. If you thought this was Tales, by the way, you're not incorrect. There is very confusing consensus on the internet of how to pronounce this old Welsh word, um, but I say Tillin because I think that's correct as opposed to Tellin. Either way, doesn't matter. But if you enjoy my episodes, if they bring you rest or enlightenment or peace, please consider compensating me monetarily on my Patreon at patreon.com slash or Share the link to my episode with your friends and family. Okay, before we get into this, I must put a disclaimer on this episode that the things I discuss may seem intense and passionate due to the amount of depth I cover on the topic and the sentiment in my vocal inflection, but I assure you that I never intend to hurt anybody's feelings unless explicitly stated. So when I talk about golf today, take what I say seriously, but not personally. Please, I am a strange human with strange interests, and I'm just exploring those things through this medium of podcasting. Forgive me if I offend your opinion on golf. I only want to discuss the sport in a way that I understand, and if you bring a new perspective feel free to enlighten me through my new email's inbox. On the topic of inflection, I think a lot about the inflection in sports reporters' voices, and whenever I think about sports in general, I think it's funny that I'm covering golf today because I was not sporty growing up. I wasn't I wasn't that sporty. Now I could call myself sporty. Um, because I feel like I know how to move my body and I feel confident. But when I was a kid, that was not the case. And especially growing up, you know, around going to Thanksgiving and you hear football commentators on the TV or going to a friend's house and they always have sports on their TV. The sports reporters' voices remind me of when, like, my mom had to force me to look her in the eyes in order for me to understand what I'm listening to. Because it's the kind of informational dialogue that you can keep easily in the background. 
It helps me think of literally anything else if I'm listening to sports commentators. It's great dissociation material. And the only way I could possibly listen to sports is if I am being forced to stare the person in the eyes while they're talking. (laughs) So the other way I listen to sports, though, is if there's some kind of tea, some kind of controversy. So that's what I'm bringing you today, Shop style. My personal relation to golf is that it's boring. I think it's less boring than baseball only because it's kind of pretty to watch. It's kind of graceful. Baseball, whatever, make your arguments about baseball, but you're kind of stuck in this arena and just like waiting around for someone to hit a ball. Golf, you can kind of look around, right? There's kind of something something going on here. It gets kind of exciting when it goes in the hole. Like that is some major skill. But it feels like golf is just a rich, bored person's thing to do. Unless you come from a family who's part of a country club for whatever reason. People join country clubs. People do that. Only The only time that I've played golf is when I was invited on a couple occasions. One with like a Boy Scout outing. And I know I've gone another time, but I just cannot seem to remember because it's just that irrelevant to me in my mind but you know the point is is that the only times most people play golf is if they're invited to go and if they have like a group of golfing friends um, or if they are already a part of a country club otherwise a lot of people have played mini golf and mini golf is a really fascinating sport too Um, I'll get into a little bit about what mini golf is but I also don't want you guys to forget about Top Golf. <laughs> Top Golf. If you know Naperville, Illinois, <laughs> it is whitewashed and overpriced. <laughs> it's a suburb of Chicago where everybody will go and you get your Starbucks reserve and your way to Lululemon. And then you go eat at like a Fogo de Chao later, right? One of those like commercial fancy places. And then you can drive over to Top Golf, which is this random building in a parking lot in the middle of like five intersecting expressways. And you get off the exit and you go to Top Golf. And then you go in there and there's, you know, TVs everywhere. It's kind of dark. And you get up to your special booth with your friends and you have your table and you can order your pricey beer or cocktails and get your buffalo wings. And then the whole point is that you get to shoot golf balls, hit golf balls, not shoot them. One thing about me is that I mix up a lot of like sports vocabulary. So just bear with me here. You hit the golf ball with a golf club off of like one of the stories of this building so you're high up and you just hit it into a field and you can do that for two hours straight with your friends so if that's what you're into you can go do that in Naperville Illinois and a lot of other places and I really hope I didn't make fun of anybody's date the other day if that's like exactly what you guys did but whatever you have to do to have fun in this world I could not possibly judge you I've played top golf before I had you know I was there it was a fun 
It was objectively fun. I don't know how to use the word objectively either, to be honest. I think it was objectively fun. <laughs> and uh, the other thing I think about when I think about golf that Top Golf does not have, and why I did not have as much fun at Top Golf than I would at a regular golf course, is golf carts, you guys. Golf carts are the main reason anybody plays golf. Let me be honest, and let's face the facts. Golf carts are the main reason why anybody is golfing on a golf course. You get your golf cart, you get your beer, you drive around, there are no, there's no street, there's no rules, you're just having a good time. So golfing on a regular course is what I prefer because of the golf cart situation. Next after I think about golf is Tiger Woods, and Tiger Woods felt like a massive event. It felt like a huge scandal. Like I, looking this up on the internet this past week and just like reading everything about it, I cannot believe how much in my mind I overblew the situation. First, I thought the rumors were that Tiger Woods beat his wife with a golf club. Turns out, it's the other way around. The wife apparently, maybe, allegedly, beat him with a golf club. And then he like got in his car and crashed it and drove away. And it was that was kind of it, you guys. I swear to God, I thought the man committed murder with how much he was on the media and all this stuff. And I think it's because of certain factors that I will cover later in this podcast the last thing when it comes to golf in my mind is all of the golf balls that I would find in the river that flows through DeKalb, the Kishwaukee River. So there's a golf course, maybe a couple, that are along the Kishwaukee, and um, the Kishwaukee ran behind my house too. So when I would go play in the in the river, <laughs> people don't play in the river anymore, or do they? I don't know. But I would go, you know, I would have to walk across this river or I would be in the river. It's a hot summer day, probably not swimming, just like looking for things. And I found so many golf balls. And I thought to myself, these are ancient artifacts. What will the anthropologists think when they find all of these golf balls buried in sediment a hundred years later? like probably not a hundred years later <laughs> probably like a thousand years later but I don't know we'll see because we're gonna get into all about how these materials degrade and how golf courses are for the environment and when I'm talking about the history of golf I want you to think about who occupied the land that these golf courses are on when we're thinking about environmentalism, we want to think about that. Who occupied the land? Who worked to change the land? And why? How are we changing the land? Who is benefiting from this change? What's the result of this change? And how can we encourage change in the future to capture a love for nature, biophilia, and support the systems that nature has in place? So now I'm going to talk about the history of golf. Think about those questions in your mind. The game of golf became known in history when King James II, the King of Scots, banned the game in 1457. 
He banned it because everybody, instead of focusing on their military training skills like archery and combat, men wanted to play golf and soccer instead. So they were in the streets, hitting balls around, instead of doing archery and combat. <laughs> Lord knows why. So King James II banned the game in 1457. He's like, this is too much a distraction. You guys need to focus on fighting. We don't really know if the game was first played from short distances by like hitting a ball into a churchyard, for example, or over long distances over a large stretch of land. We're not totally sure about that, but when James II died, the ban was lifted and the game received the royal seal of approval as King James IV enjoyed it and he became the first golfing monarch. So golf came from Scotland and James IV was the guy who was like, yes, golf. And Mary, Queen of Scots, who was his spouse, she also played golf, and she would go to France and play some golf, and she coined the term caddies, which were the military cadets that followed her around everywhere. They would carry her golf equipment for her. So by the time of the mid-1500s, long golf, I'm going to call it long golf, that's the game where you, the normal golf that we think of across big green fields, that was prominent. Historians actually understand the early basics of the game because of a Latin school book that was published. We first learned like the written rules of golf from this Latin grammar school book that kids used to learn Latin grammar. So they learned Latin grammar by learning golf terms. So this is a big folk game, right? It's hitting a ball and scoring a point. I mean, very basic. We know that since 1552, golf has been played at St. Andrews in Scotland. So St. Andrews is considered the oldest golf course in the world. One of the most famous golf courses is St. Andrews. This is where the 18-hole round of golf was established. And it was where we found the first visual evidence of golf in a painting around the 1740s. After this painting was made, go forward 40 years, the Revolutionary War ended in America, and golf was officially established in America from Scottish immigrants. This one dude in particular, he was 21, he's a Scottish guy, and he was also an enslaver. He received the first documented shipments of golf equipment to South Carolina. So South Carolina is where golf really took off. Soon after, by 1841, the first American golfing club was established in Charleston. So I think about Scottish immigrants now and think about Scottish people and their heavy, thick accent and their kind of rough and tough demeanor that I think of when I, when I watch Outlander, for example. <laughs> I think of Outlander when I think about Scottish immigrants. And they really have this like super competitive nature especially with the highland games that they also brought like track and field tournaments and it's hard for me to think about golf being a super competitive sport even though like i described earlier it's totally this fun game where you hit a ball into a challenging spot and the crowd goes crazy so whatever fun cool but when golf first started people were kind of poor and the land is different 
from the sandy dunes and plains of St. Andrews, right? So when I found out that golf was banned in New York City way back then because people were breaking too many windows, I was like, oh my god, golf was banned again. Can't believe everybody wants to hate on golf so much because it's too distracting from the serious military games. And now people are destroying... (laughs) all the windows that everybody worked so hard to build in the new quote-unquote new land, right? People who owned giant plantations in stretches of land got to play the regal version of golf. So enslavers, all the enslavers got to play the, the big version of golf, right? And who was the caddy? You guessed it, it's an enslaved person. So for a long time, using people as a golfing assistant, as if you weren't just doing the most boring and unathletic sport on earth, that was the norm. And in terms of the street golf, where people were breaking windows everywhere, that's the origin of mini golf. Not just in America, it started in Scotland, but people would play golf on roofs, they would build fun little obstacles, and they would they would play in the streets, and that's that's the origin of mini golf. With long golf, it's very much not this dirty little street game. It's very much a game that you associate with wealthy people. And the next association you might carry with wealthy people and golfing is country clubs. So country clubs were popping up all over America especially on the East Coast and in the South. So in the 1890s, country clubs were able to gain a lot more traction by providing golf courses. It was wildly popular. Golf was already a sport with a specific dress and etiquette among the elite. So joining forces with country clubs who had that whole thing about etiquette and the way you dress and social status really reinforced these norms in a particularly white protestant man way because country clubs typically admitted only those personally invited by a current member you could allow all kinds of discrimination practices so there were no women no people of color no jews no catholics and some clubs would allow partial membership for women and children mostly so women could spend leisure time with their husbands There were also the city clubs that were for gentlemen only. Those gentlemen clubs, ring a bell, strip clubs, that was a thing. And then you had your country clubs who were mainly gentlemen only until they were like, okay, but this is actually a good idea for the women to take a walk with their husbands and they'll all be together because this is the new family dynamic that we want to emanate in America. By the 1920s, Golf clubs and country clubs became synonymous, and the elite were having a ball. One of these country clubs, called the Burning Tree Club in Bethesda, Bethesda, Maryland? I don't know how to pronounce that. Bethesda? It's in Maryland. It remains a men-only club to this day, and the legend has it is that... There's this group of four men that were playing a game of golf, and for some reason, every website that I looked at described this group of four men as a foursome. So this this foursome, they were playing golf, and they got stuck behind some women who were playing too slowly for them. So they were like, 
let's just establish our own man-only club. So they did, because that's how easy it was for the white man. They established the Burning Tree Club in Maryland, and it's gentlemen only to this day. The attitude of people who like this kind of thing is generally that men finally have a space to go and talk about their feelings together. It's it's a place where boys get to be boys. It's a place where the men have this daycare center for the wives who are too busy taking care of children and housework while those hardworking men somehow have hours to walk around and play golf and drive golf carts. That's kind of the attitude is like, the wives would develop this this mindset, oh, it's so good for him to get out there and talk to his friends and, you know, basically stop distracting me from doing the important work around here. And the men loved it. Of course they loved it. My friends recently told me about a tweet that said golf is basically an excuse for men to get together and talk about their feelings and go on a little walk. And so I feel like golf is kind of like, for men, the equivalent of of going on like your hot girl walk so you'll just like you know go on a walk just just for the goodness of it because it's good for your mental health it's good for your physical health and you're just gonna enjoy the day and it's the exact same thing for men which is not bad but historically when men have gotten together in groups and declared it men only things did not really go too well especially in the south these Protestant, sexist social norms were paired with Jim Crow laws. In Georgia, the most prestigious golf tournament takes place called the Masters Tournament at Augusta National Golf Course. And the name The Masters has sparked recent controversy as the name relates directly to slavery and the racist practice in golf history. And this course was once a well-known orchard for apples and pears and peaches called Fruitlands. And then it was bought in 1931 by a guy named Bobby Jones and another guy, Clifford Roberts. And so they opened the Augusta National Golf Club. And their invitation for a nationwide competition was not named something like Augusta National, no. No, it was named The Masters. And Robert is quoted saying, As long as I'm alive, all the golfers will be white and all the caddies will be black. So, you know, we can see here the Masters is very intentional for the name. And it is still the name right now for the Invitational. In fact, most golf courses were designated and maintained by both free and enslaved black people. They were hired as caddies, despite the invention of golf carts in 1932. (laughs) Dr. George Grant was a black man who was banned from playing golf on the course, but he had such a passion for golf, and while playing rounds in his backyard, he invented the first golf tee. So black people in America have contributed a whole lot to the sport, and it even being possible to be played today. Think about the Professional Golfers Association, or the PGA, didn't lift their Caucasian-only ban until 1961. The PGA was the last professional sports association to desegregate, and it took over a decade more than most other organizations. 
And you know what happened when all those country clubs became integrated? The membership prices skyrocketed. So it's no question that country clubs are really for the wealthy, the wealthy people in your town. When you knew like somebody's family was a part of a country club, you're like, oh, <laughs> okay, I understand now, <laughs> right? And golf today is growing, but I would not say it's growing in the areas that we want it to grow. A lot of the golf websites are claiming exciting statistics for the growth of golf in general, saying that, you know, all of the golf-related content and people doing golf and following it on television or reading about it or listening to a golf-related podcast last year was up 12%. So apparently, golf's overall reach is an estimated 119 million people. And for first-timers last year, the record number reached 3.3 million people. So apparently, this has been going up a lot. And that's a whole lot of people. But here's the thing. In terms of professionals, only 8% are women. 66.2% are white people, not just women. 66.2% are white people. 13.4% are Hispanic or Latino. 9% are black, 5.5% are Asian, and 0.3% are Native Alaskan or American Indian. So not even a half of a percent. And I think as I go further into my explanation, we'll understand why. But at the end of this website, it also shows a little chart where it states that Asian professional golfers have the highest salary, while white professional golfers have the lowest salary out of all the ethnicities. And I was like, why did they feel a need to point this out? Okay, I get that they're just listing the statistics, but you have to keep in mind they didn't put a caveat for anything of the amount of white golfers there are to average out compared to the five. 0.5% of Asian golfers to average out. And then you have to think about, I'm like, okay, who is the highest paid professional golfer? It's not an Asian guy. It's a white guy named Dustin Hunter Johnson from South Carolina. So don't get worried, my friends, who are so afraid for golf being taken over by POC. (laughs) But anyways, you can tell that golfers have a long history of being in the white, I mean right, as most of the websites on golf course environmentalism end up declaring that golf courses don't contribute to harm the ecosystem at all. And let me explain how strange this conclusion is. Honestgolfers.com. Okay, stop. The word honest in their name makes all the statistics they're a little confusing. So first they say, golf balls release heavy metals when they decompose. And then they go on about mowing, watering, and fertilizing golf courses contributes to a massive carbon footprint. And they compare the the carbon footprint of a golf course to the carbon footprint of an average person, instead of comparing it to something actually comparable, like a golf course and a park. You know, they say, the carbon footprint of a golf course is 10 times that of an average person. So I wonder how much more of a carbon footprint it is compared to like 
a regular park that you would walk around in. We don't know. And then honestgolfers.com says, some courses are an ideal environment for certain types of wildlife to thrive. For example, the presence of a golf course in an otherwise bustling urban environment can often provide a spittable living environment for plants and animals that otherwise would not survive in the area. So they said some courses are an ideal environment for certain types of wildlife to thrive. What? Let me break this down. Like what? Squirrels? What kind of animals are living on your pesticide, fungicide, herbicide golf course? Let me also just break this statement down. Some courses, not listed, are an ideal environment for certain types of wildlife, not listed, to thrive. Give me the example of the golf courses. Give me the examples of the wildlife. And then they give, instead of that, they give the example of a golf course and an urban setting being an oasis for plants and animals. But lest I remind you, they use herbicides, insecticides, and that's why it's important for you to wash your produce so you don't give yourself or your children trace amounts of poison. But this is okay for other animals to roll around in and eat. And the occasional flying golf ball is nothing compared to a car flying down the street. So for them to say it's ideal for certain types of wildlife to thrive, particularly in city environments, fair enough considering the street rats and city squirrels are used to poisonous trash and traffic anyway. Sure, this is an oasis for them. But what are they eating if a bunny can't even make a hole in the ground or a squirrel can't even find any acorns because they're constantly cleaning the field? I mean, honestly, honest golf. So then I look up another website, Audubon International. I'm like, okay, cool, the Audubon Society. They are all about the birds and the environment. They're also paired up with golf. Audubon International says that golf promotes physical and mental well-being and it reduces stress for more than 25 million U.S. golfers. Everybody give a round of applause for these not stressed out, rich golfers that get to just walk about and drink their beer and ride around the golf course all the time. <laughs> and the statistics of this, it's just, it's all coming together so good for me. The idea behind this organization is to offer a good solution, Audubon, so they offer a good solution to golf courses and nudge them in the right direction while not destroying the livelihood of the sport. So good for them. We don't want golf to die. Golf is clearly a fun thing to do. A lot of us do like golf. I, I like golf. Golf is fun. You know, whatever. When I'm invited. So we still want people to golf. And Audubon still wants people to golf. So what they'll do is they'll take environmental statistics and then report them in a way that doesn't turn everyone off from playing golf entirely. So they say things like, it cannot be totally proven that golf courses are bad for the environment, or however, there is not sufficient evidence that golf courses are bad for the environment. But then they take general data and, and report general statistics like, okay, so they have this table and it's, it reports on the positive and negative effects of golf courses on the environment. So positive, improves water quality. 
wildlife shelter. It's common for golf courses to replace landfills. And golf courses provide jobs. This is for the environment, by the way. And then the negative. Maintenance costs. Carbon footprint. Lost balls and other litter. Use pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides to maintain aesthetics. But it's really, really interesting that their positives include providing jobs. When literally the title says, the table summarizes the positive and negative effects of golf courses on the environment. Provides jobs. Okay, what does that do for the animals, you guys? What? Improves water quality. Interesting. It filters out all the impurities from the water so you can have perfect little pristine pools for your golf balls to land in that animals can't even drink because of the poisonous runoff that is in the grass from insecticides. Interesting take. Wildlife shelter is the other positive. We already talked about that. What wildlife? And then the other one is that it's common for golf courses to replace landfills. So I'm going to come back to that part really quick, but then let's go to the negative. Maintenance costs. How does that affect the environment, the ecosystem? Maintenance costs. Yes, that is a negative. It has nothing to do with the environment, though. I don't know who made this table. Carbon footprint. Okay. We still don't know the carbon footprint of golf. Lost balls. It doesn't even mention the metal deposits that happen when when these golf balls decompose in natural environments. It just says that it's it's litter, right? And then the actual thing is using pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides to maintain aesthetics. Good one, you did it for that one. And the negative takes of, of golf courses on the environment. So going back to the positive of it's common for golf courses to replace landfills. Sounds good, right? It's true that they're often built on land previously used for a landfill. And in 2003, there were A lot of articles about this for some reason, all the articles that came up were from 2003, with this one Washington Post article claiming about 60 of the 16,000 courses were previous landfills. Only 60, but you know, 60, that's pretty good. That's 20 years ago. And a couple articles from golfpass.com, which contains the NBC logo, posted a couple articles about golf courses taking over landfills and brownfields, which are illegal dumping grounds. I want you all to keep in mind, this garbage just gets shipped away to a place that we cannot see. It's like in WALL-E, how all the garbage gets dumped in space. Or, you know, we leave Earth because the, the Earth becomes a total brownfield wasteland. And all this trash, you know, we put it somewhere we don't look at, or it gets buried. There's this silly illusion that golf course websites are trying to argue, where they transform the space for the good of the earth, yet the garbage isn't disappearing in thin air. And then all this garbage gets stuck underground, or comes up as a smelly chemical deposit on courses, Or imagine you're you're playing golf and you hit the club a little too hard into the grass so some dirt comes up but then some trash comes up too and there were like some reports of this that i saw on some websites i don't want to 
give this myth that all these landfill golf courses are, you know, come up with trash everywhere, but they do constant manicuring and maintenance, you guys. I, th- I think it's good that they're creating more green spaces. However, that's the minimal requirement. If they were truly with the times, they would know that massive green lawns are not beneficial for the environment. Imagine yourself as a tiny bee, all right? This is what we call a green desert. You're a tiny bee, and you need to move from this flower all the way across the golf course to that other flower all the way over there. Same species, right? Because we're trying to pollinate. But you see this, and you're like, that is literally the death of me. I'm never going to make it. Because even though bees seem so fast and light to us, they have to rest often because of how much energy they're using up flapping their little wings. And so crossing grass is like crossing this desert. No shade, no water, no shelter. In the end, the plants on one side of the course never get pollinated from the other side. And then the tiny insects and creatures have a hard time doing their job without dehydrating or overheating. And that's that's what the ecosystem is, right? It's like this system of every little creature having a certain little job to make the environment work. And when you insert a golf course into a natural environment, or say you build it on top of a landfill, good for you for making it green, and now there's a little more oxygen, but the species still cannot cross this space to get to the other side. And then that, like back to that super clean water that they boast, when golf courses have clean water, no one's intending on drinking the little po- in, from the little pool or swimming in it. Even the animals. When an ecosystem has frogs, you know nature's in good hands. And if there's ever like a pool that looks pristine, frogs can't live in there. There's no mud, there's no bugs, there are no plants. This water is heavily filtered. Just weird, random clean water for no one to use except for golf balls, lost golf balls that leak heavy metals. Recreational activities in general have been largely discriminatory. Of course, somebody who is Native American or identifies as native to this land is turned off by a golf course. It's just a piece of land that people who feel like they are royalty get to own just so they can hit golf balls everywhere. And they don't even, it doesn't even help anything, doesn't do anything for anybody. But in general, people have been excluded from sports like this in green spaces in the past. And women need to be with the children. They can't get their petticoats dirty from outdoor sports and activities, right? People of color are not allowed to do the things that white people do for fun back then. All these white people settled in to the green gorgeous countryside all these scottish people all these protestants and then they've created their clubs to further discriminate class and social status among their community only to gossip and make business deals and that's still what people do when they golf and hang out at country clubs is it's for like hanging out with your buddies and maybe you score a little business deal over beers or you get to chat a little bit about 
you know, so-and-so and so-and-so and how they're not part of the country club anymore or this family's joining the country club. And it's all, like, such... <laughs> like, it's literally, like, Bridgerton. Like, how Bridgerton makes no sense the way that it's set up, like, the people that are in it for the time that it's supposed to emulate. And you literally just sit around and gossip and, and kind of share the tea. That's what, like, golf, modern golf is. It's like a Bridgerton to me. I hope that resonates with people, but that's kind of the weak comparison I'm making. People wear their little outfits with their pearls and gold, and then they have their hair in that certain preppy style, kind of straight, not doing too much, you know? It could only be naturally possible if you're white. And then to further their perfect, pristine image, they create what they perceive as these gardens of Eden, like this perfect manicured rolling hills in the distance with a few trees here and there. And this green space was made by using the labor of black and brown people, but it's reserved for the white upper class who can afford it. People have known that it is relaxing and good for people's mental health. Like Audubon International pointed out, even though it's completely unrelated to why golf courses are good for the environment. But it's true, golfing for men is like they get to walk around and have a little chat and feel peaceful outside of their job or outside of their household. And the women... They don't get this space because they don't play sports, because they don't know how to play golf, because they don't know about any of the sport commentary or any of that. I still, most women don't. Most women still don't. It's reserved for men. And I would think that a lot of the excitement of golf is seeing new course layouts and experiencing the different locations in general. And it is, except. Instead of highlighting natural landscapes of different areas of the United States, most try to emanate the Scottish landscape with the elements like the small hills and little ponds or sand pits or dunes. Because you see, when they were building golf courses back then on their plantations, they were thinking of the homeland. They were thinking of St. Andrews. Many golfers have that competitive nature from what I found out. And I didn't expect this from an outside point of view, but it's really eminent of the Scottish roots, the roots of the competitive, manly rituals and track and field highland games and clans who carry the name of the patriarch, right? I love a good Scottish clan. It's fun. I love the Gaelic origins and the history and the rebellion against England. That's what Scotland is known for. But I also think about the way that they brought that attitude to America and how that translated. It's this relentless, competitive attitude charged with outrage against the British for a need for independence, right? That's what Scotland wanted. And they brought that to America. And that helped the Americans win the Revolutionary War against the British. And with that Scottish pride came their love for golfing. And so they settled in the Carolinas and other spaces along the East Coast and the American South and just inflamed the enslavement practices and built their little golf courses that reminded them 
of the gentle green hills and dips of their homeland, only including people that looked and acted like they could be from St. Andrews. Golf courses are the fantasy of Scottish Protestant men sick with the myth of return. Myth of return is a phrase that describes the internal conflict of immigrants who yearn for their home country, despite being irreparably broken from it. From this, they began to form their new American identity, and all the way down to the very grass they walk on. The resistance from golf clubs for racial and gender integration as well as ecological preservation are attempts to preserve the Scottish Protestant male heritage. They're rejecting all these changes through the way the sport is played and the way that we, you know, should perceive golf. It's all being rejected. The Pro Golf Association or whatever, they were the last to change for racial integration. All these golf course websites are so resistant against changing their landscape to be more hospitable to the ecosystem. And it's all in this attempt to preserve the original golf, right? And it's really fascinating. It's really fascinating to me because this this Protestant idea is particularly what gets me. Protestants are different from Catholics in the way that Protestants are more reserved, right? The Irish people, when they were being colonized by England, weren't allowed to dance anymore. And that's the same thing like when you think of the Puritans that came um, to America and settled here. The pilgrims, the Puritan pilgrims, no one was allowed to dance or dress weird or, you know, tell probably tell jokes you weren't allowed to tell jokes that's when all the witch trials came to be it's this very tight society where nobody's allowed to be different and you all need to look the same and you all need to keep to yourselves and you will be okay and so they brought this culture over to america of being a certain way and and that's the england too it's the england colonization and then the Scottish people that were kind of affected by that lifestyle and affected by toning it down themselves. And then mix that with their, with their, you know, independence, their obsession with independence and their kind of like gritty attitude. And you get Southerners. You get Southerners. And that's what I think of when I think of Southerners. But that's also now what I think of when I think of golf and when I think of golfing. This way that people dress, very clean. It's this pristine place of social hierarchy that, you know, really boasts its American values, yet is not really in with the American way and this new American identity that we want to prosper where everybody can be a part of it, right? And if they want it to, if they want golf to actually grow, you know, not just with white women, but with everybody else too, it needs to be inclusive. It needs to be sustainable. The history of golf will not die as long as it's still being played at St. Andrews in Scotland. And I guarantee you, it will always be played there. So golfers just need to guarantee the future of golf with 
inclusive and environmentally loving changes to the course in the game. It's gotta be different over here than Scotland. Make it more accessible to the boar. The, what are country clubs still doing? Honestly, I don't get a country club. I don't get it. Make each course unique and competitive and exciting by showing off the region's natural landscape. That's why like, I think about runners and going to compete, um, doing a marathon in different states. You have to train so hard because you know the landscape is different. That's what makes it interesting and fun. Because you don't know if you go to Colorado and you're from Illinois, you're going to have to train so many hills in Illinois, even though there are like no hills in Illinois. It's going to be really difficult to compete in Colorado, but that's part of the fun. That's where you can really get some interesting regionality and some cool strengths among your top players. But golf, no, it needs to all be the same. Everybody needs to be the same. You might need to get your weird little golf outfit dirty if these changes happen. I'm sorry, I feel compelled to make people who like kind of reject weird to make them feel weird. I love to do that. But anyways, you can still enjoy your country club and your golf, but you need to recognize the amount of influence you have on the future of golf if you're paying for a country club. When you speak up about unsustainable or possibly discriminatory practices for a club that you pay for, their ears will perk up. Plus, why wouldn't they want to save money on energy and water or reduce liability by removing poison everywhere? All while gaining customer satisfaction because the landscape looks beautiful and bountiful again, right? Audubon suggests a few things. They say you should be kind to the course, repair all the ball marks, and replace the divots to help maintain playability. Okay, whatever. Walk rather than use a cart, if health permits, because walking promotes physical fitness, healthy turf, and clean environment. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough, I'll walk, if that is really what's helping the environment, even though the only reason I'm playing golf is for the golf cart. We need someone to make electric golf carts, or, you know, like... So solar-powered golf carts, they can't take up that much power. Look for consistent, true ball roll on greens rather than speed. Lower mowing heights required for fast greens are at the root of many turf and environmental problems. So don't mow it super short is what I'm getting. You're looking for a consistent, true ball roll. Anyways, moving on. Keep play on the course and stay out of natural areas. Respect designated environmentally sensitive areas and wildlife habitats within the course. God willing, there are wildlife habitats within the course. Use trash and recycling receptacles and encourage others to do the same. If you see trash, don't pass it up, pick it up. Classic. Appreciate the nature of the game. Foster wildlife and natural habitats in non-play areas love that. Educate others about the benefits of environmentally responsible golf course management for the future of the game and the environment. And encourage your golf course to be an active participant in the Audubon Cooperative Sanctuary Program for golf courses. So like I said earlier, Audubon is doing a good thing trying to make these golf courses more environmentally friendly, you know, less in the carbon footprint, while also making people happy. And good for them. But you don't need to overdo it on your stats or saying that people's mental health <laughs> is good for the environment. Let's not try to draw any weird comparisons here. 
So it's interesting to me the almost political buzzwords that these websites keep using, like provides jobs, carbon footprint, litter. Okay, so when I think of litter, I think of being in first grade, being taught to reduce, reuse, and recycle, and then not to litter. And littering, it can mean literally anything that you that you throw on the ground that you toss on the ground it doesn't provide any context to what is being littered what is truly super harmful like these golf balls we can't just call them litter you guys because litter takes away from how much it actually impacts the environment i mean it's killing off species it is decomposing and releasing disgusting chemicals killing everything when water is contaminated it is a serious issue and it used to be taken so much more seriously and now we're just like litter you litter your plastic bags and your junk food and your straws and whatever else you you can throw out of your car cigarettes golf balls but we don't actually know how it impacts the environment so i think I think the language that we need to use should not be so blanket, should not be so overarching, because it minimizes what's really happening here. Providing jobs, like who are you talking to? And so I think about who are they talking to? It's the Audubon Society. Who is part of the Audubon Society? People who like to look at birds and walk around nature. Old people. Who likes golf? Old people. You know, there are young people like me that that enjoy nature and birds, and there are young people like me that enjoy golfing. But who's really in charge? Who's really putting the word out there? It's old people making these websites, and that's why everything is so outdated and irrelevant. Like, providing jobs? Who cares? I'm learning about the environment, and you're telling me about how golf courses provide jobs? I could go on and on. It's clear to me the audience that this is this is putting it out towards and you do have to think about how the Audubon Society is working for these golf courses they're talking to the owners of these country clubs the rich white owners of these country clubs they're saying look golf courses still provide jobs and they're good but there are negatives and so they have to present things that are like these buzzing keywords to get them interested to make them feel good about themselves still while saying there's something we need to change here. So I'm not hating totally on the Audubon Society, but I do see you guys. I see what you're trying to do here. I think that the like racist history of golf actually explains a lot about our perception on Tiger Woods. Honestly, all of the news headlines were just about how Tiger Woods was really angry and and you should be careful about taking your kid to a game where Tiger Woods is playing because he might be angry and swear. And it's like, kids nowadays are totally exposed to swear words everywhere. So that's not even a thing anymore. And then it's just the typical stereotype of black people being angry that you're playing into. It's like this one guy who is a legend at golf something's got to be wrong with him and we've got to make it hard for him and you know he wasn't a great dude but when it comes to dudes not a lot of dudes are great dudes 
especially I bet a lot of white white dude golfers are bad and not getting any headlines I think too a lot of like the the sports talk is so like political and and it's such like a like a reality tv type of situation because it used to be the monarchs playing right it used to be the royalty that that we followed who were so good at these sports you think of james the fourth the first golfing monarch and then his wife queen mary queen of scots who she was catholic by the way and by the time that everybody wanted her dead she was beheaded and then Scotland became a new state of Protestantism. And so then the, we had the Scottish Protestants who loved golf, and then they conquered and, you know, for their Revolutionary War. And then the American South happened with all the Scottish people and their love for golf. And then you've got all of these enslaved people who were forced to create golf courses to emanate Scotland and make it look like the home country. And now we're here. And so with all of this, I would love if we created our own army to start the new future of golf outright. I think we need we need new uniforms. We got to get all the people who don't usually play golf to get out there and play golf together. Go support a good course. Get out there. We wear something that, you know, if you want to wear a cute little golf outfit, go ahead. I want it to be crop tops. I want to see good looking sneakers. I don't want to see any of this really lame looking plain shit. I want none of that. I want I want it to be sparkly. I want it to be beautiful, but not fast fashion. Anyways, you get the you get the gist. I want this golfing army to get out there and play some golf together. We're going to redefine the sport. The golf statistics are going to go insane that the PGA cannot turn us away they're gonna be like everybody loves golf now and we're gonna be like look we only love golf if we can wear our cute outfit while we play golf and play by our own rules and also get rid of all these chemicals and actually do something for the environment you know think about your golf ball materials then we'll then we'll start listening we do have to change golf you guys golf needs to change golf is fun golf can be fun we can do, get some electric golf carts, solar-powered golf carts eventually one day, and make golf fun again. <laughs> I don't want golf to only be for people like Donald Trump one day. I, I want golf to be for everybody. If this is the American golf course, golf needs to be for everybody. So let's do it. Let's get out there and demand golf our way. Yeah, it's a rainy day. I love the rain. I think that flowers look better when it's cloudy because they pop a little more. They look less sweltered. They look more plumped up. They got some dew on them. Everybody loves dew on a flower. Go find some dew on that flower outside. Look around. I love when the world's kind of wet. It makes everybody have this excuse for not doing the usual gives everybody this innate reason of why today's going to be different and i love the rain for giving that to me for giving me the right to be a little bit different and have it be normal i also love the winter and the fall for that 
I love a spring. I love spring. Summer? So, you know, summer had its moments this, this past two summers, but summer usually is not in my top list for the seasons. I'm a seasonal girl. I love when the cold comes around and makes me feel like I don't need to keep smiling. I don't need to keep pretending like I'm enjoying my skin touching other people's skin everywhere and we're all a little bit moist and and we're all gathered in crowded spaces. It can be fun for a second. But summer is loud. You you got those cicadas and they're like and they're constant. They sound like dying babies. They literally sound like they're just dying under the sun. And then the fall comes and things start to get a little peaceful, a little windy, a little rainy. And you're like, oh my God, finally. That's how I feel. And I love winter because winter makes me feel like I can finally get a little mad. And it's normal. And I'm happy to be mad. Instead of summer, I'm mad to be mad. In winter, I'm like, yes, welcome welcome to my anger this is a wonderful place actually and I can express it peacefully and then you you get to touch people's skin in the winter and it feels like a royal privilege it feels like you know you're covered in all of these luxuriously soft layers hopefully and then touching somebody's skin is like oh I'm actually meant to touch you this is what true human connection is is touch in the winter. None of that summer touching business. I don't want any of that. So enough about touching, about seasonal touching. It's time for me to go. Thank you for listening to this podcast and sharing this strange space with me while I ranted about golf. I hope you are part of the change, the good change, the good fight for the future of golf. We don't want golf to die. We need it to live on, but it does need to change with the times. So with that, I bid you a farewell. Thank you to my patrons. And oh, I uh, I started these audio diaries for patron only. And it's literally just me kind of ranting for 20 minutes. And then it ends in a, in a song that summarizes what I ranted about. And it's all improv. It's all improv. And I just, I hop on my little harp. And I sing a little song quick. It's probably terrible. It is, it is terrible. But it's kind of good. But uh, if that interests you in becoming a patron even more, well, you have access to my audio diaries. Because I never have a good pen. And I still need a good pen. So that's why that started. If you'd like to subscribe to my Patreon, patreon.com slash T-E-L-Y-N-T-A-L-E-S. Go forth and play golf as authentically as you can in your identity. Rise up and rejoice for the new nation of golf. Amen.